If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In terms of human settlement, New Zealand has a relatively short history. But according to today's expert, Oxford University's Professor James Bellich, that makes it all the more interesting and worthy of study. So today, in our latest instalment of our Everything You Want to Know series, Professor Belich fields your questions on the history of New Zealand. He spoke to David Musgrove. So today we are talking about the history of New Zealand. It's the latest in our Everything You Want to Know uh, series. Um, So, uh, James, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks, Dave. Great, good to have you back on. And obviously, you're you're an expert in this topic. You've written um, on the subject. Actually, do you want to just uh, tell us tell us the books you've written on the topic, so uh, so the audience knows your uh, your level of expertise? Well, uh, I have written four books on New Zealand history: one on the New Zealand Wars, and uh, one uh, a study of one particular conflict, Titokawaru's War. And I've written a two volume history of New Zealand. It's quite old now. Um, the first volume was published in 1996 and the second in 2001. They're called Making Peoples and Paradise Reforged. OK, so let's jump into the questions. And the first one is from Susie1340, who wants to know, 
How old is New Zealand's human history? The latest is that it's uh, second half of the 13th century, round about 1280 AD or CE, which is extraordinarily short in comparison to other human societies. So about 800 years old. So that's, that is really short, isn't it? So um, that compares very differently to what happens in Australia, isn't it, where there's an enormous uh, long period of, uh, of human habitation. That's right. Um, uh, Australia's first populated as possibly about 60,000 years ago. So uh, New Zealand's human history is one of the youngest on Earth. And interestingly enough, it's that that gives it a special dynamic. Um, it's it's not the length that counts in history. Short histories can be as interesting as long ones. Uh, and yes, and I'm sure this conversation will be very interesting as a consequence. Are are those early people who came to New Zealand would they be the Maori? Yes, uh, they were uh, Polynesians who then developed into the distinctive Maori culture of New Zealand, and they came from from sort of further Polynesia, I guess, that were the, their homeland has actually not been pinned down with any precision. But um, the sort of Marquesas, Tahiti, Cook Islands, th- those sort of areas m- might have contributed. It's quite frustrating that given it's not that long ago, we can't pin down the Māori Hawaiki, uh, at least the, the direct one which is the place of origin, the term for place of origin, which continues, incidentally, in the name Hawaii. So do, do we know if those, if those early settlers, do we know if they were calling themselves Maori or, or is that only something that we, a name that we comes into, into use um, later on? It, it basically means normal people. So while they were the only ones around, they might have used it sort of rarely as we do, you know, other folk or something like that. But they only needed to use it once someone else had arrived. And uh, that wasn't until centuries later when the first Europeans touched base. Uh, so, you know, it's difficult to say whether they used it much, but it's, it's just a term for, you know, ordinary people, proper people. Okay, so you've kind of answered the, the second question that we had from Kristin Finch, which was, were there other Indigenous groups in New Zealand prior to or alongside the Maori? It, it, it sounds like the, the very nature of the, of the name means that, that they were all sort of the same cultural group. Actually, that's, that's an intriguing one. Th- there is a, a long-standing myth of a pre-Maori people known as the Moriori in the mainland of New Zealand, and that myth was partly based on sort of social Darwinist logic that said, well, Māori can't blame Europeans for displacing them because they displaced the Moriori, which was entirely untrue as far as the mainland of New Zealand was concerned. But there was some sort of support for it because the material culture of early Māori was focused on the hunting of big game, including moa, which are the giant birds of New Zealand, which got up to 240 kilograms, which is quite a big, quite a big budgie. And once those uh, moa were hunted out, the material culture changed. So early archaeologists associated this with a shift from one people to another, which is not in fact the case. But then to complicate matters even further, there are a real Moriori people who are the Māori-derived inhabitants 
of the Chatham Islands, which are about sort of 700k east of New Zealand. And they were an offshoot of Māori originally, but they were isolated for sort of two or three centuries and arguably are entitled to consider themselves a separate people on the same basis as Māori are entitled to consider themselves a separate people from Polynesians or white New Zealanders are entitled to consider themselves a separate people from their British forebears. And those real Moriori in the 1830s and 1840s, 1840s I think it was, um, are actually attacked and um, badly mistreated by Māori warriors fresh from the musket wars in, in mainland New Zealand. And although they're not exterminated, they are enslaved and uh, massacred to a considerable degree. Now, they survive as a people, and they consider themselves to be Moriori, and they consider themselves to be separate from Māori. But from an historical point of view, the notion that Māori wiped out a New Zealand-wide people and then sort of took over the country is completely false, and Māori naturally resent it even though their record in the Chatham Islands is not that great. Brilliant. Actually, one question I should have asked, um, uh, going back to, to, to the arrival of, of, of people in, in New Zealand, how do we know when they turned up? Is that purely archaeological evidence? Is there any documentary evidence to, to talk to that story? That's an interesting one. The irony is that the original Māori traditions have been rechecked and triangulated by a very good New Zealand prehistorian called Ethel Anderson, and they're about right. So, you know, we, we, we had this uh, pick on, I think it was about sort of 1300, 1350 maybe, and now it looks like it might have been 50 years earlier or 70 years earlier. But uh, basically the Māori traditions, which were kept very carefully for the recent past, were right. And um, the, even though they were dismissed as romantic rubbish for a century, it's now turned full cycle and they appear to be right. And there is evidence, um, including some genomic evidence, although frustratingly little because it's so recent and genomics is much better for, for, for bigger, bigger chunks of the past. There's also archaeological evidence such as... Um, whether you're above or below the tephra that arises from volcanic eruptions. And all these kind of evidence triangulate, including multiple Māori traditions from separate sources on that, that sort of late 13th century, round about 1280 or so period. So it's pretty well authenticated now, you know, to within, within a sort of 50-year margin for error. Okay. Brilliant. Well, we'll come back to to that story a bit as we as we go along. But let's move into the period of of European um, interest and involvement in New Zealand. When was New Zealand found by Europeans? Sixteen forty two, when Abel Tasman sailed the ocean blue. Um, he was a Dutch explorer hired by East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, the VOC to try to find gold and spices and precious things. And he touched on New Zealand, uh, the top of the South Island in 1642, after a, a couple of days of um, sort of confused interaction with the local Māori. One of his boats was attacked by a Māori canoe. They were believed to be 
being hostile or insulting, and uh, several of his crew were killed. And after that, New Zealand had a bit of a reputation, which actually, ironically enough, saved Māori from a, a longer period of interaction with European diseases in particular, and may have contributed to their, their current resilience as a people. So it was a pretty economical act of resistance to European expansion, but it, it kept Europeans out for well over 100 years until Cook arrives and de Surville, the French explorer, in the same year, 1769. There are, there are rumours and legends of earlier discoveries, a Spanish caravel and a few other stories, but none of them have really been authenticated. And in fact, Abel Tasman's visit wasn't particularly impactful either. You know, it didn't have much effect at all. Not on Māori, uh, it did keep Europeans away. But from 1769 and the, the, the legendary Captain Cook, uh, you did have more or less ongoing interaction between Māori and the wider world. I just want to pick you up on on, on that, um, just because our, our listeners are always interested in conspiracy theories. Is that idea of someone coming before Tasman completely off the wall is that is that like really wild and out there or is it is it a possibility it's a remote possibility but it doesn't really matter because it didn't have any impact sure so you know if if a if a drowning spanish sailor did come ashore so what you know it's, it's the the legend is kind of powered by the desire of people for romance in history, which kind of is fair enough, but there's plenty of real romance and plenty of real drama without having to invent it. But it's also powered by the strange desire to push one's history back in time, as though, you know, the older a history is, the more respectable it is. But I think that New Zealanders should um, welcome the fact that um, their history is, is short and therefore has particular qualities that should be of wide interest. And then, so specifically on the on the on the nomenclature, New Zealand. It's called New Zealand. Um, is that because of Tasman? Because, does it link back to to Zealand in in what's now Holland? Good pick, Dave. You're on the ball. Yeah, it it, it does. Uh, Australia was known as New Holland, which was the bigger of two closely allied provinces in the Netherlands the Dutch Republic as it then was in 1642, and Zealand was the smaller partner of that sort of core of um, the sort of Protestant Dutch Republic. And uh, so it was kind of, it seemed natural to Tasman and his cartographers back in Batavia or Amsterdam that it should be called um, New Zealand because Australia was New Holland. Right. Okay. Let's let's move on. Move on to Captain Cook. You've just mentioned him. So we've got a question from Guy Bailey, who is from Middlesbrough, which has uh, a link to Captain Cook. We'll probably mention that in your answer. And he says that um, they're fed the story of Captain Cook with their milk in Middlesbrough. Nice phrase. Uh, and he says the perception is is an explorer, not an exploiter. Um, but he wants to know what's the what's the provable reality. He wants to know whether you could be uh, one without the other. So basically, he's asking for your assessment of Cook, I guess. Sure, I do have an opinion, uh, and and others might disagree. But basically, I think Cook's reputation as a kind of unusually enlightened explorer is true of his earlier years. Uh, he made three voyages to New Zealand, and on the first two he did display a, a genuine interest in Māori and a, a, a sort of 
relatively high degree of impartiality for explorers who are the kind of research branch of the Enlightenment. And so part, his reputation is partly deserved. He was also a, um, a, a working-class guy uh, in the Royal Navy, which was, of course, dominated by much more genteel officers. And, you know, he, he made his way himself and did so on the basis of kind of brilliant seamanship navigation and a, a, a genuinely inquiring mind. Uh, and he could get on with a variety of people, including Joseph Banks, who accompanied him on the first voyage and was from much further up in society, an extremely wealthy man. But then later in Cook's life, um, for whatever reasons, I don't know enough about his kind of medical condition, but he sort of got grumpy and uh, began to deal with malefactors, including Maori and other Pacific Islanders, much more harshly. And so he, you know, started cutting the hands off thieves and things like that. So, so there's an early cook who conforms to the legend and a, to his own individual legend and a later cook who conforms more to the explorer as exploiter model. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, so um, let's move on. As you said, after Cook, there was you know basically a, a long story of, of European interest in New Zealand. How were the, the, the Maori treated by the early European settlers? Um, well, uh, surprisingly well on the whole until about 1845. There's a sense in which the, the question could be inverted. I mean, in, in Māori were musket-armed by this time, and there were thousands of them. They were pretty good soldiers, and Europeans numbered only in hundreds, and there were very few European troops in New Zealand until 1845, very few British troops. And so, really, it was the Māori who held the whip hand, and up, up until that period, up until 1845, the first settlement dates to about sort of 1812. So for those first few decades, the multi-European relations were surprisingly good. There were a few violent incidents, but in relation to the sum total of contact, you know, thousands of encounters, 
you know, a thousand whaling ships visited the Bay of Islands in the 1830s. Uh, that's before Britain entrenched itself in New Zealand. They were very, very slight. So really the interesting question is, why did Māori and Europeans get on so well? And the answer to that is that Māori needed Europeans. They needed each other. Māori needed Europeans for a supply of ammunition for their muskets and for replacements for their muskets, without which they would be uh, at the mercy of their tribal rivals. They also got into a, almost a, a race for, for, for having Pākehā settlers, as New Zealand Europe, Europeans are called, so that if you had one or two European settlers living with you, then someone up the road had three or four, you'd, you'd compete. Because having a, a, a European settler, missionary or not, living with you meant that you had shown, shown willing to engage peacefully with European ships for trade. And in return, Māori supplied Europeans with food and uh, with rest and recreation, as it were, which enabled whaling trades and other trades, mainly centred on Sydney at this time, in Australia to continue. So um, there was a phase of, I wouldn't call it a golden age, but there was a phase of surprisingly good relations between the two peoples, which continued for a few years and in some regions for quite a few years after the British acquired sovereignty, as they would put it, in 1840. Were all the early European settlers of British extraction? No, um, there was quite a big French role the French whaling fleet was very substantial and they formed a French settlement in uh, Akaroa in the Banks Peninsula in the South Island, which kind of more or less petered out in the late 1840s. You know, it overlapped with British settlement for a while. And it was a very intriguing uh, settlement. Americans were very important. New England whalers were dominated the whaling trade increasingly in the, in the 19th century. And they uh, were regular visitors to the Bay of Islands and um, they left quite a few of their genes there, as it were, of their DNA there through sexual interaction with Māori women. And uh, they were an important influence on New Zealand too. And there were a few others. There was a Russian expedition. There was a Spanish expedition. So, you know, it was pretty cosmopolitan. The enduring influence really, though, you know, the, the kind of focal point for early New Zealand race relations was Port Jackson, as it was known at the time, or Sydney, which was the kind of hub of a Pacific trade. And New Zealand was very much a part of that. So it was part of a Tasman world rather than separate from Australia at that time. Sure. What did the early European settlers want in New Zealand? Was it a case of uh, what first attracted you to the, to the whale-rich waters around New Zealand, or was it something else? Well, it was certainly uh, uh, Wales flax, which was important for for strategic supplies for the Royal Navy um, to make rope and sails, um, and also ship timber was cowley were, were the native New Zealand tree was very good shipbuilding timber. So it was not just Wales, but also naval stores, you know, strategic supplies, which were important and at times when the Baltic was cut off to British shipyards. And so the British were always looking for alternative sources to keep their fleets at sea. So it was important for that reason. And traders would entrench to sort of facilitate those flows. But missionaries were also quite important. There were hundreds of missionaries um, 
in the first few decades, and they usually coexisted reasonably well with local Māori communities. But then when you started getting settlers, it was really, that was a really a different story. Let's, let's hang on for just a second, because one, one of the things that we need to, we need to talk about is there's, there's the famous story of, of, of convicts being sent to Australia and Tasmania. Were convicts sent to New Zealand from Britain at any point? No, they were not. And New Zealanders were proud of the fact. But New Zealand did get a lot of second-hand convicts strained through Australia, as it were. Um, so convicts did play quite an important role in, in early New Zealand history in particular, but none came direct. Ironically, some did go the other way. So some New Zealand criminals or rebels were sent to Tasmania as convicts, including quite a few Māori. So um, Britain wasn't the only place that sent Australia convicts. New Zealand did too. Let's let's tackle one of the big moments in New Zealand history. And when I when I toured around New Zealand a few years ago, I remember going to this place, and it's a very um, evocative place, Waitangi. What is the history of the Treaty of Waitangi? And you're going to have to tell us what that is, and what have been the ripple effects for the indigenous population of New Zealand. That's a question from uh, Anna Hansen Art. Well, she's asking a hard one there. <laughs> <laughs> um, the treaty. The treaty um, was an agreement between local Māori tribes and the British, I guess you'd call him consul at the time, the prospective governor, uh, Governor Hobson. Um, well, actually, there was a British consul before, a guy called James Busby. So it was a treaty between the British and first the local tribes of Northland, which agreed to kind of split the governance of New Zealand. And there's been a lot of confusion in the far past about the differences between the English language version, which tends to emphasise the Crown's authority, and the Māori language version, which tends to emphasise the sharing of authority between the governor and the traditional authorities of the tribes, namely the chiefs. So, but it was that Māori version that Māori actually agreed to so there is now a widening consensus that that's the real version of the treaty. And the treaty has had a pretty illustrious history in the last few decades in terms of facilitating reparative justice for Māori. But it had a long period in between the sort of 1840s and I guess the 1970s when it was more or less forgotten. And indeed, the, the, one of the original copies was gnawed by rats in an archive. So it was, um, it was treated as, an, as more or less a non-entity for a very long period, despite efforts by Māori to bring it back into the centre of political discourse. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, been a, it, it's been an up and down story for the treaty, but at the moment it's on and up. Uh, and has uh, has facilitated some very important developments that enhance uh, Maori people and and New Zealand as a whole uh, in the recent past. So, uh, okay, so two things: when exactly was it, and and what exactly did it say then? Or can we? Or is that is that there another the problem that it said different things depending on who you were? It was signed on the 6th of February, 1840, at Waitangi, and then copies of it were taken around the rest of the island. didn't get everywhere, but they did get to a lot of places. And perhaps more importantly, local agreements 
were made between British representatives and local Māori that said settlers were welcome, but that Māori chiefs would continue to govern Māori. So would it be fair to say it ushers in a period of of more expansive British settlement into New Zealand? Not immediately. That's not necessarily widely known. There is the New Zealand Company, which was the brainchild of Edward Gibbon Wakefield, was one of a number of companies that tried to get in on this strange settler revolution that um, took place in Britain in particular in the 19th century, tried to make money out of it, but also believed itself to be facilitating the rapid and dynamic growth of Neo-Britons in other parts of the world. And so there was a kind of crusading quality to it. And the idea was that they would take over um, the so-called unused lands of Indigenous people in places like Australia and New Zealand and make them flower by bringing British civilization and British agricultural techniques, and that this ultimately would be for the good of the Indigenous people, who, although they would lose some land, would have their remaining land greatly increased in value. That was the theory. The practice when the British had the power was very different, but when they didn't have the power, as was the case in New Zealand in the 1840s and 1850s, you actually got a situation where New Zealand's settlement declined from the late 1840s. The number of Europeans in New Zealand declined uh, in the late 1840s. So you're not talking about an explosive kickstart from 1840. When you do get the kickstart is uh, in the early 1850s in the South Island, where you have gold rushes, which we can return to later if you wish, but also local governments, provincial governments. uh, New Zealand was divided into a number of provinces that varied over time, usually seven sometimes nine, and those provincial governments saw it as their main business to bring in money and immigrants from Britain to make their local Neo-Britain flower. And uh, when they had the numbers and Māori didn't, they managed. And that was, in the case, that was the case in the South Island. But in the North Island, that sort of colonising crusade to the frustration of the local settlers who, you know, just couldn't wait for the the sort of settlement boom that was happening everywhere else, felt that Māori, who continued to control most of the North Island until well into the 1860s, were the obstacle to progressive colonisation. And they were therefore hugely frustrated by what what they saw as, you know, Māori retarding the destined future of New Zealand as a Neo-Britain. And they were able to to manipulate the British government into supporting them with troops, with the help of dodgy characters like George Grey. Lots of interesting undercurrents here in this story, aren't there? I've got, I've got a there are yeah, got a question from from Susan Barker. It's quite a leading question, so I assume that Susan's got a view on it. Um, and she asked, "What kind of false promises did the New Zealand Company make to attract settlers?" Well, one, you know. Quite a few <laughs> is is a is a, a modest way of putting it. That the problem that faced these kind of explosive colonizers like Edward Gibbon Wakefield and other supporters of mass settlement of New Zealand was that New Zealand originally had a bit of a reputation as the Cannibal Isles 
because certain encounters between Māori and Pākehā had resulted in cannibalism, and because there had been instances of violence, and because Australians were saying not only was New Zealand the Cannibal Isles, it was also the Shaky Isles, very prone to earthquakes. So, you know, these these potential Neo-Britons tended to denigrate each other so that they could get the money in the settlers rather than someone else. And uh, so to, to crack this, this negative image, the some uh, some of the explosive colonisers went to town in terms of portraying New Zealand as a cornucopia, you know, a future paradise where you know you just had to throw a handful of seeds in the in the in the soil and they would spring up without trouble, and where you could let your pigs go wandering in the forest and they'd come back multiplied threefold without you necessarily lifting a finger. And so these, and, you know, the, the potential fertility of New Zealand regions and, uh, uh, you know, that mountainous regions could quickly be turned into orchards and vineyards. And so, you know, they and that Māori were actually lovely people, not really cannibals, and that they really wanted settler neighbours and so on and so on and so on. Uh, and that New Zealand was the natural Britain of the South essentially because it was roughly the same size as Britain, a bit bigger, actually. So they went to town, used everything they could in an extraordinary advertising campaign, which turned the reputation of New Zealand around from the Cannibal Isles to the Britain of the South within 20 years. Okay. And as a result of that, there was quite a lot of people who came from Scotland. So Kate Hamilton identifies that there are a lot of Scottish place names in New Zealand. She talks about Hamilton, Dunedin and Invercargill. She wants to know a little bit more about the the waves of Scottish migration that came in. The Scots were very important for New Zealand. Uh, They're actually... New Zealand's one of the most Scottish places on earth outside Scotland. Um, Nova Scotia and Ontario and Canada may be competitors. But especially southern New Zealand was largely settled by Presbyterian Scots, not just in the 1840s when the foundational, 1848 I think was the foundational settlement, but that Scots attracted Scots and they became an important part of the population, I think about 24% of the population. So they played the role in New Zealand of Catholic Irish in Australia. They're about the same proportion. So New Zealand was less Catholic Irish, although they were also quite significant and important, and more Scottish than Australia. And this had all sorts of effects on Pākehā culture, which is more Scottish than Australian culture, arguably to this day. So the Scots are the chief lieutenants of settlement in New Zealand to the English. And, um, I mean, the English were about sort of 50-odd percent, Scots 24 percent, Protestant Irish about 4 or 5 percent, Catholic Irish about 13, 14 percent, and then a few percent of other people, uh, such as those crucial Dalmatian settlers who were my own forebears, who add that touch of yeast to an otherwise stolid British mix and enables it to rise. Um, So... The Scots are, uh, you know, New- Scottish history in New Zealand is very important. Okay. Where would we be without the Dalmatians? Absolutely. That's what everyone says. So as as European settlement um, hotted up, presumably that leads to more conflict with the Maoris. Um, was there a, a period of intense conflict between the Indigenous people and the, and the British settlers? Uh, and a sort of a specific question, what were the New Zealand wars? Yes, the, 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 the New Zealand wars were precisely that conflict. 
And there were two groups of them, one sort of 1843, 1848, which was scattered in relatively small scale, but which basically said, no, Māori are not going to be pushed around, and although they could be tricked occasionally, George Gray managed it, they still had the whip hand in the North Island. And that increased settler frustration, and then eventually, in 1860, a bigger round of conflicts broke out, which lasted until at least 1872. So those wars of the 1860s, as they're known, got quite large in scale. And in the end, uh, you know, I calculated something like 18,000 British soldiers, sailors and militias recruited in the South Island and in Australia uh, attacked a Māori people that in, in the so-called Waikato War that numbered about 60,000 all up at the most in the whole country, of whom, you know, at most um, a fifth were were capable of soldiering. They weren't professional soldiers. So there you had a kind of cataclysmic clash between expanding Britain and Māori people. And the Māori performance in those wars was quite extraordinary, both on the political front, where these these rival tribes who had been killing each other in the musket wars, you know, 20 years earlier, 20 or 30 years earlier, managed to ally in various organisations one of which was the King Movement, and others were more kind of religious-oriented, and quite effectively resist this very large um, British and colonial army. They weren't able to win, but they were able to slow down the penetration of Māori heartlands, so that at the end of the wars, you had quite a few large patches of the inner North Island, which remained independent under Māori control, although there was still commercial interaction with uh, settler areas. And these included what, what is now called the Ten Country, a very large area, and they included the Uruwena Mountains uh, in the east, and they included, um, I guess you'd call central Taranaki in the, in, in, in the west. So um, right up until about the 1890s, uh, and arguably even longer in the Uruwena Mountains, these regions remained independent. So the notion of a total British takeover, even in 1872, is deceptive. But so is the notion that Māori somehow won the New Zealand wars. They definitely didn't. And power tilted in the favour of the settlers, not only because of military victory, but because the numbers started to change so explosively. Once this dynamic colonising crusade got fully underway, the population of Pākehā New Zealand increased from sort of 1,000 in 1840 to 500,000 in 1880. And Māori population was slowly diminishing. It was maybe 50,000. So the demographic balance had shifted so much that if Māori communities hadn't been conquered, they were in danger of being swamped or at least marginalised and left as... Um, very poverty-stricken, sort of isolated regions. And in terms of that population development, um, you, you mentioned the gold rush earlier. How important was the gold rush in bringing in new settlers and, and in the development of New Zealand generally? Much more important than New Zealand historians used to think. There's been a, always been a bit of struggling to distinguish ourselves from Australia, and the gold rush was obviously crucial there in Victoria. 
But in fact, they overflowed to New Zealand. And you could argue it's the same gold rush, you know, from California to Victoria to Otago, which was the first New Zealand gold rush. And they brought 100,000 people within a couple of years. And more later, uh, there was another gold rush in Westland in the South Island and a few smaller ones in the Coromandel and in Nelson. So the North Island had one, but not a huge one. And these were very important, and they brought new types of people, Catholic Irish, ex-convicts, Americans, and all sorts of influences that were considered by the established settlers, you know, the, the, the New Zealand company types, uh, to be very dangerous morally and culturally because they were lower class and because a lot of them were Catholic Irish. So their importance was downplayed for quite a long time, but then some very good South Island historians brought them back into prominence as a major player in New Zealand history. So uh, the gold rushes were important, but that importance is sometimes suppressed in New Zealand myth history. When did New Zealand become an independent nation? What's the, what's the timeline there? That sounds like an easy one, but it's actually an extremely difficult one. And this is one of the things that bewilders the history of the uh, the historians of the, all the British dominions, you know, you cannot put your finger on when Canada, Australia or New Zealand became independent. There are various dates for New Zealand. One is 1856, when a colonial government was set up with its own premier, the central government on top of that of the provinces. And you could say that was a date for independence. There were, there was, when New Zealand became a dominion in, um, was it 1908? And then uh, when New Zealand um, sort of belatedly adopted the notion of independent but associated nations, that was the kind of formula for the British Dominions, which was, I think, 1949. And then you could argue that it was as late as uh, 1973 when uh, Britain ran off with a Frenchman and joined the European Economic Community. Or, or alternatively joined a Franco-German commune, as New Zealanders used to say at the time. Because even at that late date, New Zealand did a, did a lot of its trade with Britain. In fact, 1966 was, I think, some of these facts are coming back to me now, was, I think, the last date in which more than half of New Zealand's exports went to Britain, 12,000 miles away. So there was an intimate economic and cultural relationship between Britain and New Zealand, such that New Zealanders actually saw themselves as Britons, but not in a colonially cringy way. They saw themselves as better Britons, you know, as demonstrated on the battlefield, on the rugby field, and in the climbing of mountains. And to a surprising extent, they're accepted not as better Britons, but as kind of near enough to British. You know, they might be the odd sneer, but no more than towards a Scot or a Yorkshireman. Okay, so the, the relationship with, the, with with Britain is very interesting, and the British. Um, what about the relationship with Australia? You've mentioned this a little bit earlier about sort of New Zealand being in the shadow of Australia and wanting to to define its own identity. Is it true that New Zealand wanted to be part of a federation with Australia at the start of the twentieth century? Not when the Australian Federation was actually signed, which was 1901, because the New Zealand economy had started to recover from the Great Depression of the 1880s and early 1890s. And it therefore thought it could go it alone. And it did have suspicions about, you know, convict colonies in Australia and, 
and you know little things like that. Uh, but it actually had been part of Australia in a sense, in that the Tasman world before the Australian Commonwealth federated in 1901 had basically included New Zealand as roughly equal to New South Wales or Victoria and a little bit bigger than Queensland or South Australia or Tasmania. So New Zealand was one of the big three of the Tasman world and its interaction with Australia was was pretty strong. Uh, then when the Depression hit in 1890, if the Australians had federated then, New Zealand probably would have joined. But the nature of these federations in Canada, in Australasia, in Southern Africa, was essentially that they were attempts to restore credit when the colonising crusade had stalled. You know, there was a bust and no one would lend to these um, these bankrupt colonial governments anymore, near bankrupt. And so they federated to sort of renew the brand. And uh, that's what happened in Canada in 1867 or whatever it was. That's what happened in uh, in Australia around about 1900 where the bust lasted longer than in New Zealand. Uh, and because of that, New Zealand didn't join. But the notion of it being entirely separate from Australia in the 19th century is a bit of a myth, because at the time, the Tasman Sea was more of a bridge than a barrier. What about... One, one thing that a lot of people know about New Zealand is this sort of early date or, for women's suffrage. So there's a question here from JJ Ferreira who wants to know, how did New Zealand get to women's suffrage before other self-governing nations and how inclusive was that right to vote um, for the Maori? I'm not too sure about the the second part of that, but the Maori had um, votes from 1867 for four seats, which were provided to Maori allies of the government who were helping it fight the resisting Maori. So the irony is that Maori seats in parliament actually derived from collaborating with the government rather than resisting it, and were later used for many other reasons, of course. Uh, there's a slightly similar undertone to the woman's suffrage issue in the sense that women were seen as nature's moral police force, and there was a, a kind of moral panic about crime and drunkenness in New Zealand during the, during the depression of the 1880s. And this shifted some towards the position that if we have votes for women, then things like temperance or even prohibition and sort of moral uplift will be energised by female moral enforcers. That's part of the story, perhaps, but there's also a wider story which is intriguingly revealed, not so much by the vote itself, but by the fact that working class women very quickly enrolled for the vote. So, you know, one can understand sort of formal middle-class feminists being enthusiasts, and one can understand some hitherto reluctant male politicians bending towards the moral crusading aspect of the thing. But there's an intriguing willingness, an intriguing rapidity in working-class women sign up to this, to, to, to actually voting. So um, it does seem that there's... A, not just a formal feminism, as you see in other countries, but also a kind of populist feminism. And its emergence in New Zealand is uh, very intriguing. Uh, I don't really think anyone's got to the bottom of it yet. I mean, part of it may be that childhood in New Zealand was kind of 
a bit less gendered and a bit wilder than in some other places, which might seem contradictory because New Zealand didn't have the wild animals and the snakes and the dangerous beasts that um, even Canada or Australia were alleged to have and did have. But almost because of that, it meant that people weren't worried about their children playing in gullies and girls playing with boys and so on. So a kind of quite robust New Zealand womanhood comes to, begins to you know, make itself sneakily felt. And so you do get this curious situation where it's not just 1893, the first nation to give women the vote. A few American states had given it before, Utah, for example, which was a very special example because full of Mormons. But it's also a persistent, I don't know, orneriness in, in, in New Zealand woman folk, uh, which is, I think, a, a very proud feature of our history, which you could see in the Great Mother's Mutiny, which is when, after the 1880s, women refused to close their eyes and think of England and stopped having as many babies. And uh, that persisted right through the 1960s. Uh, but also in funny ways, like if uh, I remember taking a, going in a camper van, the classic Australian-New Zealand thing around... Um, around Europe in, uh, I think it was 1979. And if you saw a couple of women alone hitchhiking on the side of the road in, in Spain, say, the chances of them being New Zealanders was extraordinarily high. So, and, and you can also see that coming out in New Zealand woman leaders of today, you know, Helen Clark and Jacinda Ardern and a number of others. So there is something there which has yet to be properly nailed in New Zealand culture, which makes it maybe a bit less, woman a bit less prepared to accept gender stereotypes than in some similar countries. That's really interesting. I was wondering if your argument was, was going to take that, that timeline up to, to Jacinda Ardern. We'd better skip on there. That's a really interesting one, but we haven't got much time. So um, let's let's move on a couple of decades to, to the First World War. Alex Plotkin wants to know, what was the New Zealand home front's reaction to the First World War, especially during and after Gallipoli? So it's kind of, there's this sense that that, that was like a really formative moment in the development of, of a New Zealand, well, Australian New Zealand personality. Is that true? Yes and no, as, as the typical historian's answer. The Anzac legend of Gallipoli certainly became huge in uh, New Zealand and Australian culture, although largely separately. There, there, there was a phase in the 20th century where Australia and New Zealand didn't actually interact much economically, surprisingly, uh, because both of them were more closely attached to Britain. You know, the lines were vertical more than they were horizontal. But yes, but it was kind of almost a cult of mourning as much as a celebration of a new nationalism. The casualties in New Zealand were extraordinarily high and strangely uh, problematic. They weren't as high as in Britain, of course, uh, even in proportion, but they, weren't, they were close. Um, so you've got a population of 1.1 million, 60,000 casualties killed and wounded, of whom 18,000 are killed. You can add you know, a few thousand to that for people who are more or less ruined by their wounds or by their wartime experiences. They bring home a lot of syphilis and, and venereal disease. And these things are always swept under the carpet. So you've got a lot of kind of missing or marred men wandering around New Zealand as a consequence of World War I. During the war itself, 
there was, as in Britain, there was a lot of um, banging the drums and waving the flag to keep morale up. And the flow of New Zealand volunteers was similar to that in Australia. And actually, although New Zealand did introduce conscription, conscripts were, they didn't really come on stream until the war was fully over. So most of the 112,000 New Zealanders who went overseas were actually volunteers. And most of them were males, although there were also a number of nurses whose history is quite interesting. But, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a huge, you know, trying to make good news out of, out of the Gallipoli or the Western Front is a hard struggle. <laughs> and um, New Zealand lost a lot of people there and suffered psychological blows, not only because of the casualties, which of course Britain had too, but because the war was so distant. You never saw the bodies. It was 12,000 miles away. It was almost like a, a sort of horrible computer game in which the losses were real, but, but there was actually no blood that you could see. So I think it had quite a profound effect on uh, New Zealand culture. I mean, for one thing, it, it kind of reversed progress uh, in terms of um, uh, women's rights um, because the land had to be fit for heroes and women had to take a back seat again, you know, until they were sent back into the factories during World War II. Again, it's a relatively temporary thing. So um, there, there's a lot of ambiguity about New Zealand's history in World War I. Yes, people were proud of New Zealand soldiers. Yes, people did believe them to be superior to the average British unit, which was probably true because um, they were bigger and healthier uh, and because there was less class in their selection of officers than, in, than amongst the British units. Uh, and they were very proud of that. But there was also the sense of a dreadful lot that New Zealand society couldn't quite grasp. Just time for a couple more. There's one I really want to know because I'm sure lots of people will be interested in it. And, and you mentioned the Kiwi prowess on the rugby field earlier and the, the All Blacks New Zealand team um, start their games with the hacker. Can you tell us a bit about the hacker? What is, what is the background to that? Where does it come from? It's a traditional kind of Māori dance and can be used as a war dance and often is but can be used in other ways. So there's a sense in which it's not threatening, but it says it's a bit like um, inspecting the guard when a VIP arrives. This, we've got soldiers here. Don't take us too much for granted. You're welcome, but just remember that if you did try to kill us, we could kill you. So it functions as a war dance it's best known as. And the actual haka that the, the All Blacks traditionally use was written, composed by a great Māori military leader of the Musket Wars, who was a, a bit of a Machiavellian character, but also an extremely strong one, basically built a little Ngāti Tor empire. His tribe was Ngāti Tor. In the sort of Cook Strait region, both north of the South Island and south of the North Island, his name was Te Rauparaha, and uh, it was he who composed the traditional haka, you know, kamate, kamate, kiora, kiora. It is life, it is death. So you can understand how it's become something which empowers the All Blacks who, except when they went to South Africa in the uh, 1960s and 70s, usually have quite a large Māori component. OK, last one. We had loads of questions. We'd have to skip a couple out. But, but when I was chatting to you, you mentioned one question that uh, you thought should have been asked. And I think it is quite an interesting one. We've, we've talked a lot about sort of the British impact on New Zealand as we, you know, Britain being the imperial power. But what about the impact of New Zealand on Britain? What's, what's that story? 
I think there's always a colonial ricochet, which um, metropolitan historians have largely yet to grasp, uh, whereby um, your immigrants don't leave your shores in every way. You know, they leave neighbours and friends behind them who retain communication with them. And therefore, a sort of British public sphere emerges, which is much wider than that of Britain itself. Uh, and people in Britain hear about the relative um, relative liberality of the suffrage, for example, of votes for men, let alone women, in uh, in, in New Zealand and Australia and Canada, and, and that has an impact on pressuring British elites into broadening the franchise. There are things like sport, the importance of sport and of working-class participation in it, which I think ricochet back to Britain. The notions of welfare, of women's rights, the notion of um, owning your own house, which was not at all a traditional British thing until the 20th century, largely a ricochet, I think, from the colonies. Welfare provisions like the Plunkett movement, uh, Truby King, who was a New Zealander, and the way that they... It was quite prominent in Britain too. So there's a whole raft of influences that bounce back from uh, that British diaspora out to the Neo-Britons, which um, kind of make British history more interesting and provide potentially a kind of distorted mirror image in which British society can see how it might have been or how things might have worked out if things were a little different. So um, I think there's quite substantial potential for starting to see the British settler diaspora of the long 19th century as more of a two-way process than we've hitherto seen it. So I think that's quite significant too. And then, of course, amazingly enough, just after World War II, New Zealanders were more or less ran the, the British Air Force, the RAF and Oxford University Press and uh, a number of other organisations. And no one seemed worried about the fact that this was a foreign takeover because New Zealanders didn't seem foreign. And as recently as the 90s, I think, um, you had Brian Gould, who became deputy leader of the Labour Party. He was a New Zealander and made no bones about that fact. But it was still acceptable then to be both British and a New Zealander, and no one thought twice about it. So the nature of the relationship between the old British and the new British societies is something that I think both have still to fully grapple with. That was Professor James Bellich, Professor of Global and Imperial History at Oxford University. If you're interested in finding out more about New Zealand's history, then check out the World Service programme, The Maoris of New Zealand, which is available now on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.